Well, last, excuse me, I started to say last night. Last night we didn't review anything, uh, unless you're at my house looking over my notes before I got there. But it was last week that we were in chapter 3 and we watched as the beginning or the uh, rebuilding of the wall and gates began and we know that that would have had to have been an exciting time for the children of Israel after so many years of destruction and so many years of ruin. And we began there in verse number 1 where we read of Eliashib, the high priest, who rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they builded the sheep gate, they sanctified it and set up the doors of it even unto the uh, tower of Mia, they sanctified it under the tower of Hananil, and I'm not about to read through all the names like I tried to last week, but we watched as the high priest, a man in a position of influence and in a position of prestige, he immediately, whenever it became time to work, got busy to work as well as his brethren, the other priests. And as we read through the first several verses, we watched how everybody just begun to jump in and began doing their part. But whenever we came to verse number five, we read of the nobles of Tekoa. And what it said of the nobles of Tekoa was this, is that they put not their necks to the work of their Lord. And so what that indicated was this, that they were not going to engage themselves in the rebuilding of the wall. As noble of an endeavor as it was, as much as they may be in support of it, as much as they would have even benefited from it, the scripture makes it clear that they were not going to engage in the effort. They were not going to be a part of the work and so last week I tried to show us that there are still men and women from Tekoa who live today. They obviously live in different areas, they live in different towns, they live in different cities, but there are still men and women from the city of Tekoa who are nobles who think they are above the work of everyone else. So they don't mind watching other people work, they don't mind the benefits that will come from other people's work, but they are not going to engage in it themselves and that says much about them and the person that they are. And so last week I tried to remind us when it comes to the work of the Lord, we do not want to reflect their attitude and their spirit. We want to be men and women who will get in there, who will get involved in the work, and will get our hands dirty, so to speak, and not just watch others. We do not want to be observers. We want to be doers and workers in the work of the Lord. So that in mind, tonight we are going to move on, and as we do, I'm going to talk about something that I think all of us can identify with, I think all of us can relate to, and we're not going to be here just a real long time, so just give attention to this. But I want us to think about this thought tonight, I want us to think about this truth, that many of us have been involved in some kind of a project that we knew was going to be a high traffic area. Have you been involved in a project and you knew a lot of eyes were going to see this, a lot of people were going to take note of the work that you did, and if you've ever done a project like that, I think most of us would say something like this, we have done our best to do it as good as possible. We have tried to do the best job that we could because we knew that either our wife was going to be looking at it or the husband was going to be looking at it or the family or the friends or whatever it may be. There were going to be a lot of eyes that saw that. And so as a result of that, you gave special attention and you gave extra effort to make sure that it was done well, that it was done to the best of your ability. At the same time, we've probably all done some projects like this that we knew it was not the same measure or level of importance. Maybe like for you, it would be something like it was for me. 
doing something around the house that might be in the garage or in the shed or something like that. Here's what you knew. There will not be as many eyes on this as there maybe there would be on the project inside. Would you say that you've been in a situation like that? And so if you were to look at the project on the outside that wasn't going to get all the attention or maybe the scrutiny, uh, if you looked at that project, you might have said something like this, it doesn't have to be pretty, it just has to be effective. It's got to do the job that I need it to do. Have you ever been there? All right. So if you've ever been there, here's what you know. Some jobs would require a lot of attention and a lot of effort, and and you want it to look good, you want it to be pretty, you want it to be all these things, and over here you just want it to do what it was designed to do. You're not worried about the appearance, and if someone comes over and they're critical of how you did it, you think to yourself, I really don't care what you think. It was, you know, it, it was built to do the purpose that it's doing, But I would hope that this would be our attitude, whether it be an inside project that gets a lot of visibility or an outside project that may not get a lot of visibility. I hope this would be our desire and our attitude that no matter what, we want to do it right. Okay, I guess we don't. I thought we would be of the mindset that we would want to do it right. Even if it's not pretty, even if it's not really important by way of the appearance, We want it to be done well. We want it to be done right because why engage in the project if you're not going to try to do it right? Okay, so again, I think most of us, if we would think about it, we would say, you know, this may not have been the prettiest job I've ever done, but I did it right so that it would serve the purpose that needed to be accomplished with whatever the project was. So that in mind, tonight I want us to think about the context of Nehemiah chapter 3. I don't want us to lose sight of this because it would be very easy to do so. All right, Nehemiah chapter 3, here's what's happening. The wall of Jerusalem and the gates are being rebuilt. That's what's happening, right? The wall around Jerusalem and the surrounding area as well as the gates, they are being rebuilt And I want us to focus on this for the sake of where the message is headed in a few moments. Go back to verse number 5, where we were last week. It says, They put not their necks to the work of their Lord. To the work of their Lord. I want to remind us of this again tonight, that the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the gates, this was not just the dream and the vision that Nehemiah had. This was the dream and the vision that Nehemiah had based on what God had laid on his heart. This was the work of the Lord. Okay, this was very much the work of the Lord. This was very much God-ordained. This was very much under the leadership and the direction of the Lord. And so understanding that, tonight I want us to go back to verse number 1. You may sit here and say, well, if we dealt with that last week, why are we going there again? Well, I just want us to see this, all right? In verse number 1, here is what we read. We read that the high priest, Eliashib, and his brethren, the priest, they builded the sheep gate. And I touched on this last week, that it's believed that the sheep gate was used to bring in the sheep and the other livestock to the temple, which would have been used for the sacrifices there in the temple. All right, so that is what is believed to have been the purpose of the sheep gate. So then you move over to verse number 3. In verse number 3, here is what we read. 
It says, but the fish gate did the sons of Hassaniah build. So we've got the sheep gate in verse number 1, and in verse number 3, we've got the fish gate being mentioned. Now as we think about that, I want us to think about this as well. What was the purpose of the wall, and what was the purpose of the gates? Well, they were there, and the purpose of them was for protection, right? Okay, so if a wall and gates are there for the purpose of protection, then how effective will that wall and those gates be? Well, it will only be as effective as its weakest point. You realize this, right? That if the wall is not too strong in this area, or if this gate is not too strong in the, in the order of things, if there is a weakness in that wall or in those gates, then that weakness would one day eventually be exploited by an enemy who would wish to attack them. So we've got the sheep gate being built in verse number 1 by the high priest. And in verse number 3, it says the fish gate. Can anyone guess what the fish gate was probably used for? Probably bring to, to bring the fish in, right? Did I already touch on this? No, I mean, don't look at me like I'm dumb. This is, a, this is an honest question, okay? What is the purpose of the fish gate? Well, it's believed that when the fishermen would go out and fish, they would bring it into the city limits or the city walls to the market. And so you wouldn't bring the fish in through the sheep gate. You would bring the fish in through the fish gate. Isn't it amazing how profound all this is? Now notice what it says in verse number 3 of the fish gate. It is built, it's said, by Hassaniah. And notice it says, laid the beams thereof, and set the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. How many of us have ever built a gate? Some of us have built a gate. If you've never built a gate, you probably can't relate to this, but a gate can be very frustrating. A gate can be extremely frustrating, okay? And one of the things you have to worry about on a gate is to make sure that your posts are anchored in good and strong and good and deep. And, and, and you've got to do everything just right or that gate is going to cause you problems for as long as that fence and that gate is up. Okay, so it says in verse number 3, it lays it out for us that here is what Hassaniah did, or the sons of Hassaniah. It says that they laid the beams thereof. So I don't know how big these beams would have been, but the wall would have been strong, the wall would have been tall, the wall would have been thick, and so the beams would have had to have matched it. So they put the beams thereof in the ground, and they set the doors upon those beams. So again, if you want to have a fortified city, those gates would have had to have been thick, they would have had to have been sturdy, and they would have had to have been well secured. So the thick strong, fortified doors. They would have been placed there on the beams. And then it says on those doors there were locks. What do you think of when you think of a lock? I think of something like we put on the shed out here at the church. You know, a little master lock. You just pop it on there and then you put it there and, and you assume that it's good to go. Well, how much protection do you think that would provide against an enemy attack? Okay, probably not much. 
It would offer no protection whatsoever. So I don't know what the lock would have looked like, but I can promise you it was serious business when it came to designing and building and then implementing the lock on the fish gate. And then past that it says not only did they set the beams thereof and the locks, but it also says that they set the bars thereof. The bars. This is a pretty well-reinforced gate, is it not? You've got the beams, you've got the doors set upon those beams, the locks for those gates, and the bars thereof. We're not talking about cute little decorative wrought iron that people put over their windows. We're talking about serious bars in place for the purpose of protection. So that was the attention given to the fish gate. Now if you go back to verse number 1, the sheep gate, as I've already brought our attention to, is mentioned. And it doesn't give the same detail in verse number 1 that it gives in verse number 3. But it does say that they sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even the lower of Maya, they sanctified it. So what you have to kind of assume is this is that probably the same care and attention to detail was given to the sheep gate that was given to the fish gate. It's not as though the people of Israel would have said, well, you know, I mean, if an enemy were to ever attack, they would never dream of coming to the sheep gate. They would have to give the same level of care and attention to the sheep gate that they would give to the fish gate. Somebody says, who cares? Well, I want to show us something, all right? There is no doubt that for the fish gate, they would have set the beams or laid the beams, then set the doors thereof, and it would have had locks like the fish gate, and it would have had the bars there. But now I want us to go to verse number 6. Verse number 6. It says, Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, or Paseah. All right, so now we have the old gate. What do you think that was? It was an old gate. We don't know what it was. We just know that it was an old gate. And some suggest or some are of the opinion that that would have been where one of the original gates of the city was before the walls and the gates were destroyed as a result of entering into captivity. Now notice what it says of the old gate in verse number 6. We know it was repaired by Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Bezodeah. Now notice what it says. They laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. What did they do in verse number 6? They did the exact same thing to the old gate that they did to the fish gate, that we can safely assume they did to the sheep gate. They put the beams in the ground. It would have been the same size beams. It would have been the same thickness. It would have been the same height. It would have been buried most likely to the same depth. The doors would have been the same. The locks would have been the same. The bars would have been the same. Things would have been consistent for what reason? Because... They knew that if an enemy wanted to attack, they could find that weakness, they could exploit it. So the old gate had to be as strong as the fish gate and the sheep gate. All right. Somebody says, this is amazing. Go to verse number 13. 
about to read of the exciting valley gate. We read of the valley gate in verse number 13. What do you think the valley gate was used for? Head out to the valley. Or to head in from the valley. I guess because of the region and how things were laid out, there was a gate that would allow men and women entrance and and access or exiting out of the city, whatever it may have been, the purpose of. But there was a gate apparently that led out to the valley And it says that it was repaired by Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa. It says they built it. And what did they do? And it says they set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and a thousand cubits on the wall unto the dung gate. So in verse number 13, we're introduced to the dung gate. Now we have the sheep gate. We have the fish gate. We've got an old gate, and we've got a valley gate so far, correct? And all that led up to the dung gate. I want to ask you something. When you think of dung, what do you think of? Don't answer out loud because I know what your answer is. But when you think of dung, what do you think of? You think of something that's nasty most generally, right? Something that is disgusting. When, when you think of dung, you don't think of anything noble. You don't think of anything glamorous. When you think of dung, you don't think of anything beautiful. <coughs> Excuse me. When you think of dung, you, you don't think of anything really that you want to be involved with. So what do you think the dung gate was used for? Well, I can promise you this. It wasn't used for the purpose of bringing dung in. It was used for the purpose of taking the dung and the trash and, and the, just the waste of the city. That is what the dung gate was used for, was to get rid of all the trash and all the nasty and all the disgusting and all the stuff that no one would want to, to deal with or, or to work with. And yet here is the dung gate, and notice what it says in verse number 14. It says, but the dung gate repaired Malchiah the son of Rechab, the ruler of part of beth It says he built it. And what did he do? It says he set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. The dung gate? Yes, the dung gate. The disgusting part of the city, the part that no one would want to fool with, the part that no one would want to mess with, the part that would be just repulsive in the eyes of most people, the dung gate, yes, the dung gate. And what did the dung gate receive? It received the same measure of attention as the sheep gate, as the fish gate, as the old gate, and as the valley gate. Why? Because it needed to be done right. You understand this? 
The sheep gate, was it important that it be done right? Of course. Why? Because there would be many people who would use that for entrance and and exiting the city. There would be so much traffic through there. It needed to be done right, and it needed to be done right in case the enemy were to ever try to attack there. It needed to be able to withstand the attack. Well, you've got the fish gate. What kind of traffic would it see? It would see all sorts of traffic, people entering and exiting the city. You've got the old gate. You've got the valley gate, people who would be going out of the valleys and people coming in from the valleys. It would have so much traffic and it would need to be done right. But the dung gate, how many would go in and out of there? Minimal amounts of people would use the dung gate. But it needed the same measure of attention and care and craftsmanship as any other gate because it was a part of the work of the Lord that had to be done by someone. So Malchiah, the son of Rechab, he and whoever helped him jumped in and they built the dung gate as well as the valley gate, the fish gate, and every other gate. I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, now that's an impressive testimony and that's an impressive principle that needs to be considered. Well, for what reason? Well, how would you like to go down in history as being the guy who repaired the dung gate? I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, some people, they'd say something like this, you know, I'd rather be known for building that old gate. You know, at least I could take people to that and say, hey, look what I did. I got to rebuild the old gate. You wouldn't ever say to someone, hey, let's run over to the dung gate and check out my work. You know, most people be like, I trust you. I think it's fine. I bet you did a great job. And now that it's in use and, you know, people are actually using the dung gate for what it was designed for, you know, I just, I'm going to trust you. I bet it looks fantastic. And, and, and I don't need to go there. But again, here is Malchiah, and he did the work of the dung gate with as much effort and as much precision as anyone else built their gate. It had to be done right, just like any other work of their Lord. Now tonight I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a very simple question. Again, it's just a simple thought. It's a simple principle that I want us to consider. But I want us to consider the work of the Lord today. And I want to ask you this, that is it possible that some people in the work of the Lord don't always give it their best effort to do it right Because for whatever reason, they've determined that that particular work doesn't really need to be done right. The answer is yes. It happens. If you you got lost in that, if you got confused in that, let me just ask it one more time and let's see if this makes sense. By way of principle, is it possible that today there are people involved in the work of the Lord, but for whatever reason they have determined that this isn't real important or this isn't real significant. So as a result of them determining this isn't as important as maybe another work or another ministry, I don't have to work as hard to get it right because after all, in comparison, it's not as significant. It doesn't matter as much. There are people who have that kind of an attitude and who have that kind of approach about the ministry and the work of the Lord. 
And so this evening, for just a couple of moments, I want to remind us of something. That it does not matter what part of the work of the Lord we are engaged in. It does not matter how visible that work is. You know what it deserves? It deserves to be done right. Any work of the Lord that is done by the hands of men, it should receive all the effort and all the attention and all the care that it can so that whenever we are done with that, we can walk away from it and say, we have done our best to do this right for the sake of the work of the Lord. Think about this for just a moment. On a typical Sunday morning, if everything goes incredible, I have the opportunity to preach to about 60 people. 60 to 65 people, maybe to 70. That's if everything goes well and everybody is in attendance and maybe we have some visitors. You would expect me, would you not? to do everything I can on a Sunday morning to do it right? And if you showed up on a Sunday morning and, and you left saying, you know, I don't think he really tried. I don't think he really gave it his best this morning. I don't think he really put the time in. I don't think he really studied. I don't think he really tried on that one. If that became a pattern of my ministry, what would you become by way of the ministry? You would become disgusted by my approach. It, listen, friends, if I got to this place in my, you know, in my personal life as the pastor of this church where I said, you know, it doesn't really matter. They're going to keep paying me. They're going to keep coming back. They're going to keep supporting me. They'll keep being kind. They'll keep being gracious. And I really don't have to get it right. If that was the approach that I took to ministry, eventually you would get fed up and you'd say, enough of this. Do your job the way it's supposed to be done. And you'd be right in having that kind of an attitude. On a Sunday night and a Wednesday night, what do I have the chance by way of ministry? What do I have the chance to preach to by way of numbers, by way of size? It would be about 40 to 45 on a typical Sunday night and a Wednesday night. So is that big and impressive? Is it as important as, as the fish gate, so to speak, or the valley gate? Well, it ought to be. It absolutely ought to be. I cannot allow myself to get into this mindset, to get into this way of thinking that says, well, you know, it's just not as important as some other area of ministry or someone else's ministry. So, you know, I'm just going to try to just throw it together and make it work. Listen, friends, it's not right. You either do it right or don't do it and let somebody else step up who will do it right. Now, why is that important? It's important not only for me, but it's important for every one of you who are involved in the work of the Lord. Now, I want you to understand something. I'm not a bit interested in showmanship whatsoever. And I know that we've dealt with some of this in the past, and it's going to sound somewhat repetitive. That's fine. We can use the reminder. I just want to remind those of you who are Sunday school teachers in this church, it is never your privilege to say before a Sunday school lesson starts, ah, this will probably work. Amen. 
Well, I really didn't have much study time this week. Well, I really didn't, you know, I really didn't make the effort. I really didn't prioritize my time. I, I really didn't give myself to this like it should. But, but, you know, it'll work. Really? Is that really how we want to approach our area of service and the work of the Lord? Well, you know, I mean, they're little kids. They're not going to be too critical. They're little kids. They're not going to know if I really studied or if I just picked up the notes this morning right before the class started. They're not going to know. Friends, it doesn't matter whether or not the kids know. God in heaven knows whether or not you're trying to do it right. Well, you know, I mean, these are just teenagers. You know, these are just my friends. These are just the people that, that I've known for so many years. And, and, you know, it's junior church, whatever it may be. If we're of the mindset that it doesn't really matter, then, friends, we don't understand the importance of what it is we're doing here in the work of the Lord. You know, whenever we sing... We're not ever going to be performers. We're not ever going to be people who win talent contests as a whole. I get it. But it ought to be our desire to get our part, to get the timing right, to present it in the best possible way. Not because we're looking for the praise of some, some person or, 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 or some individual, but because we are trying to do the work of the Lord. If we should be doing anything for the work of the Lord, it should be trying to get it right. Whenever we sing, whenever we serve, whenever we minister, whenever we do, whatever it is, the purpose is to do it right. When you're sitting in the nursery, the purpose of the nursery is to watch kids and either to be engaged in their lives or to be giving attention to the service at hand. The purpose of sitting in the nursery is not to sit and scroll through social media for an hour or to be on the internet or Googling or whatever it is. The purpose is to be involved in the lives of the children and if they're busy and playing and they're active, then it's your responsibility to continue trying to grow even through the TV monitor but not just, you know, flippantly saying, well, I've got nursery, I'm kind of off duty tonight. There's a right way and a wrong way to handle nursery duty. You're supposed to do this right. I don't care what our ministry is. If it's as simple as getting the camera straight... That's a ministry that needs to be done right. It doesn't matter if it's the visible job that the preacher does or some job that receives almost no visibility whatsoever. You and I should do it right. Because it all matters in the work of the Lord. Past that, because you may say, well, whatever. Past that, I think we need to be reminded in Scripture that the principle continues. You know, like whatever our hand finds to do, do it with all of our might. 
That our work is always unto the Lord no matter what it is we're engaged in. So it doesn't really matter if we're here at the church or if we're someplace else. What should always be a priority of ours? Do it right. We have a testimony. We have a a name associated with us as believers. We're Christians. Who ought to do it right, whatever it is? It ought to be us. Think about this. Let the world be the sloppy ones. This doesn't seem too exciting, apparently. Just going to throw this out here. Let the world's people be the sloppy ones. Let the world and the lost people, the carnal people, let them be the ones who don't give maximum effort, who don't really apply themselves. Let them be that way, but don't ever let it be said of us that we didn't try to do it right. If you're at work this week, do it right. You're a Christian. Do it right. You are involved in the work of the Lord. Don't get sloppy. Don't get lazy. Don't assume that it's no big deal. You'll be fine. Nobody will really care. No, do it right. This week, if you're involved in something outside of the church, don't be of the mindset. Nobody will know. Nobody will really, you know, even be aware as to whether or not I've done it the way I should. No, we are Christians. For goodness sake, do it right. There is a fantastic principle in this to be reminded of. Here is Malchiah. He is assigned the dung gate of all gates, of all portions of the wall, and he goes out there and he does it just like everyone else does their gate. He was going to do it right. He understood this is the work of the Lord, and it needs to be done as well on this gate as any other gate. I just want to remind us, as a church family, whatever we endeavor to do, it ought to be sought and it ought to be our desire to do it right. There's really no place for us to be sloppy. There's really no place for us to just kind of sling it up there or throw it up there and call it good. No, it needs to be done right. just needs to be so if we're doing anything do it right because we've got Christianity and our testimony on the line don't ever let yourself get to a place where you don't care and you're not worried because somebody out there will see the work and if it's not done right will be forever remembered as the type of people who just didn't care. We don't want that. All right, let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you'd help us to be men and women who look at this principle. God, I obviously believe there's some substance to this and some significance to it or we wouldn't have spent our time here tonight. But God, it may be that there are some in here this evening, they might have to admit that in recent days they've not really tried to make it right, to do it right, whatever their ministry may be. 
Lord, maybe in just their daily personal lives, they've gotten sloppy, they've gotten messy with how they're approaching things, and they just need to step it up a notch. God, I pray that you'd help us to be men and women who do it right, no matter what the task is, no matter how visible it may be, but to do it right because it's right. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.